Mindfulness Mode 509. I also think that all the personal traumas and things that happened in my life when I was younger sort of propelled me. Now, Mindful Tribe, wait till I tell you, I have a wonderful guest, and I know she's a wonderful guest because we've had a very nice pre-show chat already. She's Mm -hmm. written a book. She has really accomplished fantastic things in her life. I have Olin Muhammad with me today. Ola, are you in mindfulness mode today? I don't know when you've been interviewed, if you really can be in full mindful, but I am fully present. I will say that. Okay. That's a Mm -hmm. great start to be Mm -hmm. fully present. I'm going to share a little bit about you with Mindful Tribe, Ola. Ola Muhammad is the founder and creative director of Ija Ray Ray. Awesome. And we got it. <laughs> that is the coolest name of a company I've heard in a long time. Yeah. So I'll say it again Eja Ray Ray. Mm-hmm. And uh, these are all about designs. She's worked with some major celebrities, including NBA superstar player LeBron James mm-hmm. and music recording artist Jay Cole. That is right. Now, these are big names. When Ola was choosing a career, she was told, believe it or not, that her dream of becoming an architect was not suited for a black woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Even though people tried to step on her neck on the way up, it didn't stop her. She she took that as a challenge and she became highly successful as an architect living in the most affluent neighborhood in Illinois. Ola learned that what holds people back the most from achieving their dreams is not racism but self-hate. So we're going to talk about that today. So Ola, what does mindfulness mean to you? What's your definition of mindfulness? I think, you know, I have a a couple of definitions, but I think not only just being present, but being considerate of, you know, not just yourself, but of others as well before you say something or do something, you know, but mainly just to be fully present in what it is that you want to do, you know, having clarity. That's what mindfulness means to me. And so you had clarity. You wanted to become an architect. How old were you when you knew that you wanted to be an architect or at least that you wanted to be involved in design? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I I know exactly when I wanted to be an architect. I was nine years old. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I always, in my book, I write about that. My mom claims that at age nine months, at nine months, I was already drawing perfect circles. And so she knew immediately that I had that talent that my father, you know, had, which is, you know, very artistic to be an artistic person. I used to love coloring books. I loved to color. I would make sure I write, you know, I I drew and color within, you know, the lines, you know, when it get out. So I just always known that that was something that I wanted to get into. And um, we used to live in Florida and grew up going to Disney World, going to SeaWorld, Universal Studios. And, you know, I had an epiphany after coming back from school. Um, We were now in Nigeria at this time. You know, I've moved around quite a bit of different places, you know, continents and everything. Mm -hmm. And I told her, I realized I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I said, ah, mom, I'm going to be a cartoonist. So I was like super excited. I had clarity where my direction was going to be. And I told my mom and she just kind of looked at me funny. (laughs) And 
moved me over to our parlor, which is like the living room in Nigeria. And she took out one of the, you know, you remember the encyclopedias? You remember those? I do. <laughs> before, before Google, before the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she took one of them out and she went through the entree and it started with the letter A and it said architecture, you know, an architect. Yeah. And she says, why don't you become an architect? And I uh-huh. said, what, what is that? I was like, what is an architect? I didn't even know how to pronounce it. Right. I, was, I was just nine years old. And I read about it and I still was going to be able to draw, even though I was going to need to do a lot of math and physics. And I remember telling my mom, like, you know, I don't like math. That's not my favorite subject. That's definitely not my strong suit. But she kind of swayed me. And she was really, she was all, mom is always good about swaying in her mm-hmm. very gentle and kind way mm-hmm. uh, in the right direction. And, you know, as any kid, most kids anyway, whatever your parents say, that's golden, right? Yeah. You know, and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll be an architect. And I never swayed from that. My mom said I was going to, I should be an architect. She felt that was a, a better career move than being a cartoonist. She felt that, you know, I would make more money, you know, to be and at least be able to still do what I love, which is design, you know, any, and she just said, be an architect. And that's since then, that's what mm-hmm. I started pursuing. And it, when she did it, I don't think she had any clue of the obstacles I would face as a female, not only just as a female, but also a black female. Like she, it never even occurred to her. Maybe if it did, she might've changed, you know, told me to do something completely different, but she knew I had a talent of design. And she says that's, she felt that was the one for me. And so when did those challenges start to rear their ugly head? You know, I think about like if I was still in Nigeria, if I would have encountered the same thing, I think I would have because architecture is, you know, a male dominated, you know, um, industry. And when I left Nigeria, I left Nigeria when I was 12 years old. I was born actually in Chicago. Okay. But then we returned back at five when I was five years old because my, my father had passed away suddenly. Returned back to um, New York when I was 12 years old. And then, you know, once again, always going to do architecture, always going to do architecture. And so when I got to college, you know, I didn't have any issues per se in, in high school because, you know, there really isn't any uh, architectural classes at that point. Maybe you're able to take drafting courses, but not really full core architecture. So when I got yeah. into college, that's when I started, you know, dealing with professors, not even like, this is way before I even graduated where Uh professors were blocking me. These are people who are supposed to teach you and the information, but they would say, why are you going into architecture in the first place? You know, why don't you go into nursing? You know, what what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Professors. I had one professor told me he was very blatant and I actually appreciated his honesty. I prefer you to tell me my face that you don't like me versus you to be pretentious. And then I had no idea that you were feeling something against me, but he told me he was going to fail me and I should drop his class. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and did um, you drop his class? I did. I dropped his class because I thought, you know, better to get a W, you know, withdraw than to get an F, you know, yeah. if he was going to flunk me. So from that point on, I made it my business to make sure that I knew who was teaching certain classes. You know, if I heard or found out that he was biased in any way or she was biased in any way, now make sure not to take that course, you know? Right. So that was the way I kind of circumvented the professors who were trying to block me from achieving my goal. And I assume you had to take math and physics at college. Is that oh, right? Yeah, I And did. how did that go? 
Oh my gosh, it was very difficult. Was it? It was very difficult for me. I sort of held, you know, towards the very last, you know, the end of, you know, college, trying to avoid it as much as possible. But, you know, at my my fourth year, it was inevitable, right? You had to do, you had to take structures. And structures was a combination of physics and math and everything in between, engineering. And so I actually fell, I flunked my structures class three times. Oh, wow. <laughs> three and times. You stuck with it. Yes, I flunked it three times. But, you know, once again, I'm a very assertive new person. If I, if I have my mind set on something and I was already so close to the finish line. So I wasn't going to let that, you know, slow me so down. So you had all your other classes. You just didn't have that one. I just couldn't get over that one. But I remember my professor, you, these type of things make you remember your professor or your professor's name and every significant person at your time, right? His name was Professor Shi, And he... You know, he knew I was struggling. He knew this is, I, I needed to get through this. And he was, and, and not only was he the, he was the only professor, he had a strong Asian accent. So I couldn't even understand what he was, made it more difficult to understand um, something that was already very difficult for me to comprehend. But he said he would help me after, you know, he had his day job. He was an engineer working for an engineering firm in, in Michigan. I graduated at Lawrence Tech University in Michigan. Okay. And after class and after, I think it was actually it's the summertime. Summertime, we, you know, did one-on-one lessons and sessions so he can help me get through structures. Uh, he was the only professor teaching it, so I had no choice. I had to get through him. Okay. And so he helped me. And then the next time I took it, which was the fourth time, I got a C. So just enough to get through to get past. And I still had to take structures two and three. Oh. Yeah. So by the time I had, you know, but... When you flunked that many times, you know, by the time you get to the fourth time, you finally make a C, something clicked, you know, you now comprehend it, you know, things. So when I took structures two and three, believe it or not, I, I got B's. Wow. You didn't let any of this slow you down. How much mindfulness did it take for you to keep focusing on your goal? You know, I think I didn't realize that this was something that's statistically proven, you know, to work, but I used to write things down. And so for mindfulness, for me at that time, I had no idea that that's, you know, what I was doing. I was manifesting what I wanted, you know, and I write things down. I said, this is what I want. You know, I used to have like little scrapbooks of things that I, you know, pictures, you know, kind of like those, you know, what do you call those dream boards type of thing, you know? And so I would say, this is where I see myself. This is where I want to be. And so that sort of pushed me forward. And I also think that all the personal traumas and things that happened in my life when I was younger sort of propelled me to just continue, you know, just not allowing any thing that negative that happened to sort of stop me or block me from my goals. Right. Wow. And so what's the first thing you did when you graduated? Where did you go to work or what did it take a long time to find a job? What was that like? You know, wow. By the time I was done just dealing with the professors who were trying to block me, you know, and everything else that, you know, there's so much more, you know, we could talk about it for hours. I was mentally exhausted. I was so exhausted. I don't even, I didn't even 
you know, walk. You know, I didn't do a graduation. I didn't walk. I didn't, I just went over to go get my diploma afterwards because I was just so exhausted by all, you know, just, you know, the professors who were stopping me, who are trying to block me from achieving my goals. But I, you know, for me, I was one of the very rare and super lucky ones. I actually started working at an architecture firm at 19. Oh. Yes, way before I graduated. Yes. Uh-huh. And so I met this um, Nigerian. He was a one, one guy, you know, architectural firm office, a small office in Detroit. And one of the professors at the college that I was attending had told me about him that I should reach out to him. You know, he might be able to offer me some type of reception job. Okay. But at least I'll be closer to my goal of being an architect. So that's what he was thinking. Once again, you know, he doesn't know that he's being in a way subliminally, you know, biased because I'm a woman, but he says, you know, you want to go into architecture, go to this, you know, firm, he might need your help with some administrative work and then you can at least get to see him. And this guy knew, I guess he could see that I, I really yearned for this. I really desired this. Mm-hmm. And um, he told me, and it really resonated. I write about this extensively in my book. His name was Fred. And he says, you know, in order for you to make it, you know, because you're going to hit a lot of obstacles because you are not only just a woman, but you're also a black woman. You need to make yourself irreplaceable. You know, you position yourself in a way that nobody would have any choice but to hire you. And at that time, this is when AutoCAD first came about. I don't know if you're familiar with AutoCAD, you know, but it's a drawing software that I think was started in, it began in the 80s, early 80s, but in the 90s, this was like the new way of architecture. Yes, it was. It was the new way. And this was in the 90s for me. And he told me to learn AutoCAD, you know, in and out. Like I, like I didn't even know any other thing. And at right. this time you have the golden boys or, you know, the predominantly white males who were used to having the drafting tables, you know, and the T-squares and they're still doing it old school. And at their age, they're not really trying to learn anything computerized. You know how it is when something new come out, there's yeah. a lot of resistance, you know, with learning. And, but I was still young, I was fresh. And he told me that would be my secret weapon. And I listened to what he said and I learned AutoCAD in and out. Not only did I learn AutoCAD, I also learned um, another software called MicroStation. And so when all of my you know, other you know, college you know, mates were working at you know, McDonald's or you know, some cafe, I was already working at a firm. You know, I self-learned AutoCAD and that just gave me that edge to get in because there was such a demand for it. So uh-huh. I took that you know, mentality of always positioning yourself to be irreplaceable throughout my whole entire career and even in my business, you know, my business model. Wow, that's so exciting. And did you work for that same man after you graduated or did you get a different job? Oh, I got a different job. I mean, once I learned, uh, once I self-learned AutoCAD a little bit, they started offering AutoCAD uh, in the college that I was attending, Lawrence Tech University. And so I refined, you know, what I had already learned, you know, just learning all the proper way of the commands, the AutoCAD commands and everything like that. And that landed me in another um, architect and engineering firm. But once again, um, this was an Asian, you know, I think there were Indians, you know, um, men who just yeah. felt I was suitable um, being the receptionist. 
So, oh. Oh, wow. so, so, and which, what was bizarre or funny is that the, so a couple of the guys, you know, when they had an AutoCAD question, because they were older men and they're still trying to figure it out. And I already mastered, they would always ask me to come to the back, show them a couple of commands, show them how to do certain things, and then go back up front to answer those phone calls. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, oh, it was crazy. crazy. Yeah, but then I, I got tired of just being there and I told them, you know, if you guys are not going to put me uh, on, you know, some type of project so I can actually help you guys, then I need to go. And they offered me more money and I said, no, I, I can't. I'm not learning anything here. I'm just sitting here bored to death, you know, doing something. And I'm still young. You know, I want to do, I want to be an architect and I'm not getting any training whatsoever. And so I... um landed, I uh, applied for a job with um, this woman who's like one of the only few women out here in the United States, and I think the entire world, honestly, um, that was an architect and she was a black woman. Ah, so she, you got a job with her. So this is going, we still have a connection. Zoom in uh, we do. Funny. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Good. Okay, yeah. Good. So let's just back up there. Oh, so you got a job with her. I got a job with her and I was super excited about it because now I actually have someone representation, someone who actually represented me. She was black. She was a woman and she was, an, she had her own architectural firm, you know, and it was, it was, um, it was called the, the, uh, the Hannah and Associates group. You know, Hannah, Hannah and Associates, her name was Hannah, um, Beverly Hannah. And so I was super excited. I think if you look at the stacks at that time, it's less than 0.1% uh, uh, you know, of black females who are actually licensed architects in the entire world. Wow. Okay? Yes. Wow. So you can imagine how much of that was an honor for me to be under, you know, her wings, to be able to learn everything from her and just watch her. Mm. Um, because at that time, affirmative action was very, you know, that was that was like a big deal at that time. It, you know, she had um, um, she had um, lobbied for a, a job at um, General Motors and General Motors being at the big threes of Detroit, Michigan at the time. Um, I was one of the chosen people to work on a million dollar project. Uh -huh. um, yes. In, in, in Detroit. Now, all of this, I'm still in college. I am still in my early 20s. I'm either 21, 22 or something like that. And I was already working for General Motors. Wow. Yeah while going to college. So I was on my own at that time. So I've been on my own since I was 18, you know, um, okay. years old. So uh, my mom, you know, lived in Nigeria. My father, you know, deceased. So I was just on my own, you know. And so uh, I would work at General Motors, you know, during the day and in the evenings I went to college. Wow, good for you. Yeah. yeah All I, you had yeah. to do was pass that one course. All I had to do was pass that one. Well, I was taking that course while working at General Motors, you know? So yeah. um, it just, and when I worked at General Motors, that just um, opened up just uh, a door of more opportunities for me because I, I had, you know, I, be, I became an AutoCAD, you know, expert. I knew it so well, you know, that uh, it's just, it was just, it just led to a whole bunch of opportunities. I worked for Starbucks, you know, I worked for G General Motors, I worked for Sears when we moved here to, you know, um, from Seattle to Chicago. I've moved around all over the place, but I've moved around, you know, and just, yeah, it was because I, you know, always positioned myself to be, 
irreplaceable. And I think that's, you know, I, when I talk about my, in my book, it's a two part, you know, thing where I talk about my, my the personal, my memoir, but I also talk about just, you know, how to be better in business, you know, how to um, position yourself so that, you know, especially if you're a minority, so that you can continue uh, to do what you, your, your, your purpose or live your purpose and do what you want to do. So why do you say that what holds most people back from achieving their dreams is not racism, but it's self-hate? Let's talk about this self-hate component. You know, I think this is something that might be uncomfortable for some, you know, people of my own kind, but I have to talk about it. You know, um, like I said, I was born here, um, you know, but unfortunately my father, he died, you know, two months before I was even born. So I never even got to... Um, see my dad. He died in his sleep. He was still, you know, 26. He was working on his master's degree here. Um, I'm, uh, par- uh, uh, my parents are, you know, Nigerians, you know, so uh, I'm first generation. Um, but when my father passed away, you know, my mom was still young. She was 24 years old, um, didn't have any family members here. So we moved back to Nigeria when I, you know, when I was five years old, moved back to Nigeria. Um, and then I came back here to the United States and I, it was a huge shock. You know, uh, I moved here back in 1988. Okay. What was so, the shock like? I just didn't know. And I don't know how to convey this. You know, I just didn't realize that there would be bias, um, from my own kind. You know, what what was that like? What kind of bias did you? Yeah, I think there's this. Well, the thing is, you know, and and that's a long, you know, topic that we have to condense here. But when you have, you know, African Americans who who are here because of slavery, you know, the mentality is different from uh, somebody who is Nigerian American who didn't come from, you know, a generation of uh, being oppressed. You know. Okay. And so when you come down, when I came down here, I didn't come with any mindset that, um, of, you know, being self-conscious of my skin, you know, I just came with the mindset of just any normal, uh, 12 year old girl. I, I didn't sure. think any, it, it not, you know, but it's not until I came back when I came here, um, I received the worst treatment, you know, from my own kind, um, whether it was with my family members, you know, cause I, I could, I wasn't living with my mom. I was living with relatives who treated me like I was basically their maid, you know, who treated me unfairly, you know, just really mean spirited. And, 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 and that goes on from just, you know, like an abused person being abused, you know, kind of like that saying, hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. you know, that type of situation. But when I step out, you know, the, the kids, the black kids, um, had the, had the perception of whatever false, false falsehood that they received from watching the media, watching the TV, which is that, you know, anything black was inferior. If I was coming from Africa, you know, maybe I was primitive. Uh, perhaps I still, I didn't, I wasn't used to all the, you know, modern things that were going on here in the United States. Like maybe I still lived in a, in a tree or maybe uh, I used an elephant as my form of transportation. They would, you know, poke fun and say, you know, you smell, you're, you look like a monkey or because I was a dark skin 
you know, flat-nosed girl. So um, I was surprised, you know, I, once again, I, I come from a place where everyone looked like me. So right. I, I wasn't subjected to that type of situation, but then coming as a Nigerian uh, American, you know, and, and they, didn't, they didn't perceive me as a, an American because I had an accent. Um, and then they would also poke fun because like other countries, and I'm sure you know this, uh, most countries are, are well advanced in, in math and sciences. And so when I came, I was super smart, you know, um, sure. they even skipped a grade. I had to skip a grade. I was supposed to be in the seventh grade when I came and I went straight from the sixth grade to the eighth grade, uh-huh. um, because, you know, they had, I went to this Catholic school in, in Brooklyn, New York, and I, they took a test and I just excelled. And then not only that, Nigeria, if you might know uh, anything about Nigeria, we were colonized by, you know, the British people. Mm-hmm. So I came also with speaking proper English, you know? Okay. Um, and so that was foreign to um, African-Americans or Black Americans. And so I couldn't relate to them. You know, because uh, not only was, you know, did I excel in English, but I was, you know, I also excelled in math and sciences. So um, I had that confidence and they, t- they took that confidence as uh, me being cocky or, or you know, or arrogant. Exactly. So, right. so, you know, I had them being biased because they felt they already had that mindset that anybody who wasn't from Africa was like those people you see in the infomercial infomercials at that time where you have these kids who are suffering, um, who are so severely poor, they're living in poverty, they have flies on their mouths and, you know, big heads, big pot bellies, you know, like suffering. And so that's what their perception of uh, Africa was. I would see it on the TV at the time when I was 12 and I would be confused because these are not things that I saw when I lived in Nigeria at all. You know, I was a a city girl and I I didn't see that in the city and I didn't see that in the village, you know. So it was strange that this is how they perceived people who came from Africa, you know. And and, and not only, I was coming from just one little country in the whole continent of, of Africa, you know, and and they just, wherever part that was being shown on TV, that was the, you know, that, that I must be from there, you know, that perception. Right, sure. So you just, sure. you know, dealing with all of that type of um, bias was, was shocking. I, I found myself um, actually kind of staying away from African-Americans and I seem to relate a little bit more to people who are Caribbean Americans, you know, kids who are Jamaican or who, you know, who, first generation, you know, uh, they were, you know, their parents are Jamaican or Haitians or something like that because mm-hmm. they were more related to, uh, you know, sort of my culture. They had more of this similar morals, uh, you know, moral values as, as you know, someone who was coming from Africa. So I seem to relate more to them, you know, and it's it, funny, it was, you know, people who, um, who are not my race, like, you know, Italians or, um, you know, white folks, Caucasians who were more curious about where I came from, you know, would ask questions. So that was a shocker to me and a disappointment, actually, to be honest. Yeah, well, I guess it must have been very shocking. And and I'm sure a lot of that treatment you would describe as bullying. Is that right? Oh, oh yeah. You know, it's definitely bullying. I, I, spe- I specifically remember always, you know, when I was in New York and I would, I was a loner, you know, because, you know, I couldn't relate, you know, they, and, and New York and Brooklyn and Flatbush at that time, you know, drug infested, you know, a lot of crime, 
there was a high school near nearby, which was known to be rumored to be one of the worst, you know, high schools in Brooklyn. And so I went to the to a different high school, which is really was the second, you know, worst. (laughs) (laughs) It was better than going to the first, right? Yeah. Well, I went to William Grady in Brooklyn, Coney Island, you know, so it's okay. about a 20 minute, you know, train ride, you know, take the D or the Q train to Coney Island. And, um, but I would always go walk by myself, come back by myself. And I, there were these three girls. I would see them all the time. I knew they went to Erasmus, you know, but I always stayed away, stayed clear of them. They were, you know, I would be on the other, you know, across the street, you know, on my way home, even though I knew if, they, if I was on their side of the street, you know, the, the street, it would be better for me because it's closer to my house, but I was always trying to avoid them. Um, but one day I decided to just go on that side because I was trying to get home for whatever reason mm-hmm. sooner. And those three girls, you know, they saw me and I think they were just waiting for that opportunity, you know? And, uh, one of them, you know, just kind of shoved me as we were walking. I mean, I was not even close to them. I was just, I was just trying to walk walk home and they were coming towards me and they, you know, one of them hit, you know, just hit my uh, shoulder when I almost tripped. And so I turned around and I don't know, maybe I should have just kept on walking, (laughs) but I just have this fire in me or something (laughs) to just, you know, defense mode to sort of protect myself. And it didn't matter if I knew I was outnumbered, but I would still say something. And so I turned around and I picked up a can uh, it was an empty Pepsi can and I, you know, and I threw it at them and I said some, you know, profanity at them for, you know, hitting me for no reason. And they turned around and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm, I'm about to get a beat down right now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, I knew I couldn't do anything. I couldn't run, you know, cause then I would be, you know, deemed a punk and they would probably always chase me all the time. Right. So I just stood there, you know, just ready to just get my beat down. And miraculously somebody out of nowhere was a guy, you know, I don't, I have never seen him before. I don't know who he is. I have to think that it was, it might've been my guardian agent, you know, angel. Sometimes I even think it might've been my dad, you know, yeah, that was watching over me because he just intervened just out the blue. And he, he just started screaming at them. He just kind of went right in between, you know, the groups, you know, and myself and, and just shouting or saying something. And it just gave me enough time to just bail. I ran, you know, yeah. I ran back, you know? And so that was just life. That was life. You know, um, I was bullied in high school, you know, same thing. They would make fun of me about my accent they'll make fun of me and you know talk about my body my body part and say you know why don't you have any breasts you know i wasn't developing yet <laughs> you know i was yeah, just 12 yeah. years old right you were 12 <laughs> i was just 12 you know so yeah. just all of these things you know um was, was going on it was just part of um life but i just you know i didn't expect so much ignorance from my own skin tone, you know? No, and no, it was, it was I guess very, not. Yeah, very disappointing. But yeah, that that's that was one, a couple of experiences wow. of being bullied. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, Ola, it's, it's fascinating to hear so many aspects of your life story, but I'm so excited to learn about how you ended up with Eja Ray Ray, which is the oh, name yeah. of your design company. And yes. I'm going to spell it because that's your website. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so go check out Ola's website, which is I J O R E R E dot com. And I'm going to repeat it I J O R E R E 
com, and it's pronounced Ejarayray. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> how did you arrive with a design firm with upscale offerings? You know what? Um, I think it was inevitable that I was going to be an entrepreneur because when I did a full evaluation in my book of all the different careers, you know, the jobs, the positions and all the trials and tribulations that I dealt with, it was inevitable that, you know, I was not going to allow for anyone to be the boss of me. You know, I just had that, you know, trait of uh, entrepreneur. You know, there's some people who love to do a nine to five and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. But I just wasn't cut to be an entrepreneur. And then for me also, you know, family life, I, I was an architect, you know, you know, in a career in architect for 15 years, you know, for 15 a little bit, years, 15 years. So that was pretty significant. And uh, I did a lot of traveling at this, at that point, when I decided to become an entrepreneur, I was working for the feds. I was, um, you know, an accessibility officer, regional accessibility officer for general service administration, GSA. Okay. Here in Chicago. Um, and uh, I had my third child and that just changed my whole trajectory. Yes. Uh, you know, when I had my son, I was just exhausted. I was mentally exhausted. I just knew that I could not um, hold, you know, the front for family and also, you know, manage uh, a career, you know, uh, that was filled with traveling and inspecting and, um, you know, dealing with you know, biases, everything, you know, all of that. I just was tired. And I said, you know, how can I still do what I love, which is design, you know, how can I still utilize that, but also be able to have more flexibility, you know, with family life. Mm -hmm. And so I was already doing jury on the side, just kind of leisurely. It wasn't really a, a real job. And then I incorporated it and it started getting bigger and bigger at the brand. You know, I was designing invitations, you know, that was the Mm -hmm. core of it. I said, wow, this is a whole lot easier than having to worry about a building falling down. Right. You know, as an architect, you know, you have to deal with, you know, budgets and code issues and all these restrictions, you know, and honestly, because of all the challenges I faced as a black woman, I really didn't get a lot of opportunities. I got some, but not as much opportunities because of, you know, my sex and because of my, you know, race. And so Mm -hmm. I would only do a lot of reviewing of drawings. I wasn't doing what I was designed to do. You know, I wasn't doing what I, you know, my purpose. I wasn't fulfilling my purpose of designing buildings like I really wanted to. And yeah. so, you know, doing invitations, doing Ijerere at the time was a way to vent out my creativity, you know. And once I realized that it became much bigger and bigger, you know, more, it was getting a lot of notary in the wedding and events industry. I said, you know what, I can actually do this full time. You know, and so I took that leap of faith, uh, May of uh, 2013, just a year after I had my son, I went full time into, you know, running my business, even though I had already started EJRA in 2008, it officially, I officially become, became an entrepreneur in uh, 2013. Okay. So seven years you've been running this business. Mm -hmm. And so did you expand from just doing invitations to doing other things? Yeah. So I, you know, when I decided to quit, you know, corporate and, and just full-time, you know, becoming an entrepreneur, I had opened up a venue. So I had an event space that I, you know, had the 
wonderful opportunity of designing from floor to ceiling. It's just absolutely wonderful, you know? And I did that for four years and I realized that I just enjoyed the designing part. I didn't mm-hmm. really design, enjoy managing and dealing with the logistics of having events there. So I let that go. So I did that, you know, um, for four years. So it wasn't just invitations. I was, you know, also, you know, designing all the events that, you know, that were happening at the venue at the time. Um, and so I find myself still kind of going to my architectural roots where I would go and design people's homes, you know, the interiors of their homes. I would still provide, you know, architectural drawings to them, you know, while also still running Ijorere. Um, but once, you, you know, Ijorere became my main focus after a certain time and I was doing really, really well, making six figures doing that. And so I just stuck to that, you know, I just stuck to that, you know, and now when I decided to go ahead and, um, you know, I had a prompting to, to write this book. Um, and I realized that my focus has shifted, you know, over the past couple of years. Um, I want to empower more women like myself, more women who are creatives, who are especially women of color, because there are not a lot of, a lot of us who are doing, you know, what I do right now. And so that's part of the reason why I did the book, you know, and just recently I, I, I launched a retreat and this is a mindfulness retreat because it is, you know, uh, I, I, I really strongly believe in the idea or the concept of quieting your mind in order to retain the information. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been for the past, you know, couple of years, few years, actually, you know, um, speaking at different uh, functions, um, at um, conferences, you know, just, you know, teaching and mentoring um, other women um, of color, women who want to go into either architecture or stationary design or be an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I realized when you go to these type of conferences that um, sometimes they feel intimidated to approach you because you are the authority. You're, you know, in front of, you know, a group of hundreds of people and you're talking. Um, and so I said, okay, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to, you know, start up this retreat where it's super intimate. And when I say intimate, like maybe no more than 12 people at the time, 12, 15 people where we just get together, we relax the mind through meditation, guided meditation. And then that way, when I talk, I think they're able to once just fully relax, get clarity. And then when I tell them something, they can retain that information and actually implement it so that they can thrive, so that they can be successful in whatever it is that they want to do. And where is the the retreat taking place? It is actually happening in Michigan, Union Pier, um, this April. And it's called Wasimi Retreat. It's still an extension of Ijo Rere. That's a whole different thing, you know, but you can find that information either, you know, on Ijo Rere or if you, you know, go to my personal um, Instagram page. Okay. And your personal Instagram page is Ola Morin Muhammad. And it's O-L-A-M-O-R-I-N. And then Muhammad, M-U-H-A-M-M-E-D. So you'll find Ola yeah. on Instagram there. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds exciting in yeah. April to be doing your live event. Oh, yeah. I'm really so excited about this one because, you know, this way I get to, you know, be in an environment and also have other women in a, an environment, like a diverse, diverse group of women who I can talk to and who can talk to me as well about any questions or any issues that they have encountered so we can sort of problem solve. You know, I want them to be masters of their 
their craft, you know, and I want yeah. them. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, um, in an intimate setting, it's just so much, you know, I think they can, you know, can go so much further. And how long is the event? It's a weekend event. It actually is April 16th through April 19th. Um, and um, just you've seen my website. You know, I, I, I do high end. That's my brand. Right. Um, so for me, it's all or nothing. So whatever I do, I want to make sure it is done to the very best. I don't do anything. What, would, what could someone expect to take away with them as a result of going to that weekend event? I think, you know, once again, it's that idea of, you know, being able to empower, you know, themselves so that they can just have a sense of, they already know their purpose. Most of these people who are coming already have a purpose, but I want them to be able to have like, what's the direction? How do I get to this purpose that I know that I'm aligned to, you know, to do, you know? So that's what I'm hoping that it would take from them. But I want them mostly to just kind of like restore you know, because we get, especially minority, you know, especially women, we get beat up so much. We take on so much, you know, especially if you're a mom, um, a mom like myself, you know, I'm a mom of three. So you're just so exhausted and you need a place where you can rest and also be able to, uh, you know, rejuvenate, but also restore and just kind of receive information and be able to sure. receive that, you know, so that whatever it is that you want to do, you can succeed in it. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Ola, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. Oh. So just 30 second answers. Are oh my gosh. Here's the first okay. one. Yeah. Okay. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Oh my gosh. I think it's my mom. You know, I would uh, say my mom. Yeah. Awesome. She, she's who I dedicate the book to, you know, just Wonderful. the way she, the way she does is, is that's exactly how I want to be. Wow. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Ola? I just realized the power of just simple things. Like if you want to be productive, make your bed. First thing is actually a something article that I read about making your bed and how you can be productive. So that's being mindful of what I want, you know, being able to be productive. And also, like I said, writing it down so you can manifest what it is that you want in your life. Beautiful. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's another long story. That's not a 30 second thing. You know? <laughs> that's part of what we will be doing at Wasami Retreat. We will be breathing deep so that we can stay calm, you know, and just, you know, see the effects of just deep breathing. Just breathe out, breathe in. Mm. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, other than your book, which is called <laughs> Get Your Foot Off My Neck, and that book is coming out soon. Uh -huh. Isn't it coming out the end of the month? It's coming Something out like on my birthday. On my, oh, uh, that's uh, right. Yes, a leap year. I decided February 29th would be perfect, which is my birthday. You know, February is Black History Month, so it's right in line. And then, you know, March 1st, it begins, you know, Women's International Day month. So that also is right in line. But it, you were asking the question about what book I would, you know, I love, it's, it's called um, The Power of Now by oh, Edhard yeah. Tolle. I think yes. that was so profounding for me, you know, and that's another long conversation. <laughs> that's a wonderful book. I think yes. I have it here at my desk. <laughs> oh, yes. I, yeah. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Can you share an app which can help with mindfulness? Calm. Yes, of <laughs> course. Calm is a good one. I, I use that to go to bed sometimes so I can, you yeah. know, practice my breathing. Yeah. Ola, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you and, and Mindful yeah. Tribe. Just one more time, get yourself over to the website and it's I-J-O-R-E-R-E.com. Ijare. -E -E and uh, yeah, and also find 
find Ola on Instagram at Ola Morin Muhammad. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being on the show, Ola. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Really my, appreciate it. It was enjoyable. My pleasure. <laughs> All the best to you. Bye now. 